1: Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast Brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes Hot off the press, uh, delivered to The Hilo HQ by CJ is Liam Gallagher tweeting that tato crisps are the best in the world how do you feel about that dolly
2: vindicated utterly vindicated particularly when it's been um, a bit of a rocky week for britain's crisps well it's a controversial week a controversial week channel 5 has done a poll um, and published their results of the nation's favorite crisps and it's I, i just can't make heads or tails of it the, the top tier... Heads or tails, not even a single head or tail. <laughs> heads or tails, multiple heads or tails. The top tier a Pringles Original, Doritos Flamin' Hot, and Walker's Salt and Vinegar. Yeah, that's strange. tier underneath strange. that is McCoy's Ready Salted. What? Get Out of Town. Kettle Chips Balsamic Vinegar. Yes. Now, I give them this. Walker Sensations... Thai sweet chilli. Yeah, it's fine. good. It's good, yeah. Finally, a all. I mean, I prefer caramelised onion, but fine. Love those ones. And then Tyrells. Naked Tyrells. Tyrrells are creeping up the crisp chart. And then the mid-tier is actually... All my preferred brands because it's more of kind of lighter textured crisps like Monster Munch. Yes, had some pickled onion yesterday. So good. Quavers. Yep. What's Yeah. Chipsticks.
1: Yes, good. And also uh, hula hoops. And hula hoops. Barbecue are, Hula hoops. hoops are on that tier, Pandora. I'd also argue for a frazzle. Love a frazzle. I'd even if space I'm Space
2: Raiders. Yeah, Space Raider. I love they It's still the space. 10p. Yeah, they do them in my corner what shop. What are they made of? <laughs> I'm so glad that you and I are so compatible with our crisps. Yeah, absolutely. In other news, I uh, have torn off two little corners. I can corners, see you with your little snippets. <laughs> two little snippets when I was reading the paper in a waiting room this week um, of stories that I thought pertained to the high-low's interests. Number one. Scientists have devised a simple test for fake olive oil that could halt a trade that Italian investigators lament gives mafia gangs profit margins three times higher than that they can get from cocaine. Italian police often seize counterfeit olive oil. In 2016, after a poor European harvest, 7,000 tons of blended North African oils were intercepted on the way to markets, where they would have been branded as extra virgin. A study by the University of California estimated that two thirds of extra virgin olive oil imported to the U.S. did not meet the legal standard. Doesn't that read like the script for a Dolmio advert? Sure. Do
1: you know I would say
2: is, does it taste much different? It does actually. Does it matter? Yeah. <gasps> um, I, I actually can't even I, I can't even dignify that question with. The okay, sorry, Pandora. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but Hang I just on. found it hilarious this idea of this like all of. I mean, I'm sure it's I'm, not hilarious. I mean, I think it's amazing that it's uh
1: um endowing the mafia
2: with more. Ma- I know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> My other lovely piece of news is a grandmother aged 104 was taken into custody by police after she revealed it was her greatest wish to be arrested. <laughs> Anne Brokenbrow, who has never been in trouble... Who? Brokenbrow. She's a very jolly looking w- woman. Look at her there. She's absolutely over the moon to be arrested. Who has never been in trouble with the law, was handcuffed and bundled into a police car. She said it was interesting. Nothing like that ever happened to me before. They put the cuffs on. I had the lot. What did it feel like being a criminal? Well it will make me much more careful of what I say and do. Mrs Brokenbrow, a former secretarial worker, was arrested as part of the Wishing Washing Line charity initiative where residents at her care home in Stoke Bishop Bristol write down what they want most on their bucket list then and members of the public help their wishes come true.
1: I was going to say, is that a Make a Wish Foundation? So, in the same way that some people want to go to Florida to swim on the dolphins. Yeah. I love the policeman who coming to work that morning. I know. The sergeant goes a little bit of a different one for you today. <laughs> going to I role play that. with an 104 year old. I, lo- I thought that was heaven. That story. Thank you for those very divergent nuggets of news, which <laughs> is what the high is all about. Also, in the high low's interests. A sensational piece of Spice Girls gossip has emerged. Have you heard this? I mean, I thought everyone knew about this story for decades. You thought everyone knew that Jerry and Mel B have done the world thing? Yeah. How do you know? I knew that when I was about ten. I think you hoped for it. <laughs> Piers Morgan's life stories last week um, revealed this truth after Mel B was a guest. Mel C was in the audience looking terrified. Mm, and Piers, Piers Morgan said afterwards... Good morning, Britain," he said. Uh, she dashed round the back and was seen making panicked calls to uh, Jerry. And but I loved Mel B saying Jerry's going to hate me for this because she's all posh in a country house and her husband. But it's a fact.
2: And apparently revealed she's got great boobs.
1: She did say she's got great <laughs> boobs. And even almost even more fascinatingly, Lorraine Kelly has separated herself from herself to avoid a tax bill of 1.2 million. Still not entirely sure how the details of avoiding that tax works, but I'm obsessed with this story. Lorraine claimed that Lorraine was a performative construct and not a real person. She was a chatty persona that performed on itv what do you make of this story dolly i think it's really disappointing i'm really disappointed i love lorraine and i loathe rich people who avoid tax me too. It's one of my biggest bugbears so i'm quite upset about this mm. i am tickled by the performative construct. someone tweeted us ask, asking if you and me were performative constructs imagine if you were actually a 48 year old man from yorkshire named cyril <laughs> and therefore that legitimized all my tax dodging I did see on Twitter that um, Lorraine's Instagram, not Lorraine herself, not Lorraine her performance Construct, but Lorraine the TV show. They tweeted, you know, what she was wearing this morning. She was smiling, wearing a lovely star print dress and someone wrote underneath... um, is that the uh, tax-avoided trend? I don't like that this season. <laughs> Lots of very funny comments in response to that. Also this week, a million people joined the People's March on Saturday calling for another referendum regarding Brexit. And there has been a 593% increase in Islamophobia in the UK after the Christchurch massacre, which is incredibly sad. I was reading something the other day that said we should be as concerned about the rise in fascism as much as we are Absolutely. fundamentalism. Absolutely. And think that's really true they mm. should be occupying equal weights in um public discourse right now in the
2: mailbag this week we had lots of responses to our leaving neverland deep dive this from a barrister i prosecute a lot of rape and serious sexual offenses and one of the concepts that is most difficult to translate to a jury is the process of grooming falling in love with someone's abuser is difficult for many to understand disbelief that someone could get away with it whilst others may have been under the same roof or even in the same room is the gut reaction for most and as a result it has been difficult to secure convictions in these sorts of cases documentaries like leaving neverland and abducted in plain sight help penetrate public consciousness so that those feelings of disbelief are replaced by a slow understanding i sincerely hope that my current jury have watched them we also received this from a lawyer who works with abuse victims You mentioned the earlier court case where Jackson's victims denied any sexual abuse had occurred. In obtaining statements from my claimants, I often found myself surprised at how difficult it was for the victims to discuss the abuse, even 30, 40 or 50 years later. Of the victims I spoke to, the perpetrator of the abuse was always, as you mentioned, someone the victim knew, and always someone in a position of power whom they trusted. Despite this, although recognising the abuse as a betrayal, many of the victims did not harbour long-lasting vendettas against the abusers, but rather felt intimidation, sadness and a desire to make peace with their abuser or the organisation. This was clear in claims against religious institutions where, unexpectedly, claimants did not eschew all religions or belief, with many continuing to have a complicated relationship with religion and continuing to attend church. And a listener wrote to share a personal account of how complicated it is to reconcile the memory of a beloved figure who is also an abuser. A member of staff in my youth organisation was discovered after his death to have drugged and abused a massive proportion of boys in the group. Watching media coverage of the case was surreal. What upset me most about the way he was portrayed is that he was painted unquestionably and totally as a horrendous monster. While it is true that the things he did are unforgivable, he was also a beloved and trusted figure, both by us, his victims and his adult co-workers. While I now recognise aspects of it as grooming, his teaching methods were innovative, effective and always very entertaining." It was simply too difficult to reconcile this esteemed and warm father figure with the things he had done and minimising our positive experiences with him made it worse. What eventually helped was accepting that the joy we had was genuine and that we had to go through a grieving process for the loss of him as we knew him before we could even conceive of him in a negative way. Erasing Jackson's musical past and the joy he brought millions of people is counterproductive We cannot deceive ourselves into thinking that evil people can only produce evil things. We should be able to acknowledge the genius of Jackson's music, but that is not to say we should ignore the darkness he harboured.
1: And in the physical mailbag, I wanted to mention a book that we got sent. Life, Lemons and Melons, an illustrated first-person account of breast cancer by Alice May Perkis. She says it is part memoir, part support Bible for anyone going through treatment for breast cancer or experiencing battles with their brain. But it's also for anyone who has ever felt alone, scared, broken or anxious. I hope it will provide a light to anyone who finds themselves in a dark place. Please check your boobs, knowing yours could save your life. And that's available to buy. And we will put the link to that in the show notes.
2: What have you been reading
1: and watching this week, Panda? I read Inheritance by Danny Shapiro, a serial memoirist. So you mentioned a brilliant piece by her last week for the New York Times um, about not letting rip, which I just love and really think about a lot as writing more and more non fiction. But I'd, I'd never read anything from her before, had, had you? No, I have not So Inheritance is about... Um, So she's in her mid-50s writing this memoir, and um, it's about finding out through an internet DNA test. You've done one of those, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. So she did one in the States, I think Ancestry.com, and she found out that her father is not her father.
2: Oh, do you know what? I feel very satisfied by that, because I've put that as a plot twist in a script that I'm currently... (laughs) well she was not who she thought she was which
1: was an orthodox Jewish woman instead as people had joked about her entire life on account of her blue eyes and fair hair and often it had been very painful for her and her identity she was half Christian and this changed the way she viewed everything her family, her upbringing, her religion she had a very religious upbringing her father was very religious Um, and the things that she held close it kind of threw her entire identity up in the air and as a serial memoirist, she, you know, uses it as an opportunity to take the reader on that journey of mm. piecing herself back together and of finding her father. I loved her mixture of memoir and the writing of others. She quotes other people a lot and she says she reads a lot. And that's very apparent through her writing in order to write, which is a process I personally have to go through when I write so it really chimed with me the kind of writerly process as much as as the content at times I felt like it was a little repetitive but I actually think that meditative quality is a deliberate writing tool for her to allow Mm. the reader to feel really in the moment Mm. and because it was such an overwhelming thing for her to find out that she was not who she thought she was that that kind of dwelling time and that reminding and that revisiting is actually probably really important yeah and
2: those books are not on the whole meant to be plotty yeah, it's a bit exactly. Like bit Levy's book
1: although yeah. some people have reviewed it some people reviewing it have said that it reads a bit like a thriller because really? there is that inve- it, there's a lot of investigating and like uncovering and um, digging which her husband who sounds um, you know amazing really kind of helps her with as well you'll really enjoy it I now want to go and read various other books by her. Um, she did a memoir called Hourglass. She's written about her son being very ill when he was young. She's written mem- a memoir about her marriage. So, yeah, I'm going to go down the whole... Down- I'm, I think I might read them in reverse. Hmm. Like, start, end with her first one she wrote. I've never done that before. Um, I was reading Joel Golby's brilliant brilliant, 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 Brilliant. There are five Brilliants. Do wonder if a woman would have written a book called Brilliant, Brilliant 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 but it is quite brilliant the first essay things you only know when both your parents are dead is particularly strong with its mixture of humor and pathos it's sort of an agonized humor in that there is humor in the agony and agony in the humor um
2: and i think for anyone who wants a taster of it before they buy the book i think that was serialized in the Guardian. Oh, was it? There. Yeah. Oh, yeah. brilliant! So there's yeah. an extract you can read, and you will
1: definitely buy the book once. It's you the it. it's the opening essay, and I would say it's the strongest. Um, there's a lot of other very, very funny, very witty bits of observation as well, including a camel sort of beauty contest in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed have been really affected by and just only hope it gets into as many hands as possible. Jailbirds by Mim Skinner, who worked in a women's prison as a teacher um, and chaplaincy assistant for two years. And it's completely based on fact. Obviously, almost every name and detail has been changed. Um, The women still in prison have to have their anonymity preserved. I think if they're out of prison, then you don 't have to necessarily keep the anonymity. I think it's up to the women, but anyway, it is all based on facts and she 's really clear that this is not a book about statistics; this is a book about stories about women who are in jail. but I think the statistics are really important um, because almost all the statistics that we have in um the news are about male prisons. Um, the charity women in prison found that seventy nine percent of the women that they work with are victims of domestic violence. Mm. 48% of women in prison report that they have committed crimes to support someone else's drug habit, usually a partner. 53% have been victims of child abuse. In a country where under 1% of children are in care, 31% of the women in prison have been. So I think it's really, really important um, to sort of state those Facts and that she does so upfront before you read the book. Mim is passionate about prison reform, but she doesn't think the current system works. There's no rehabilitation in it, for example. And she really challenges this idea that she said she had this preconceived notion that why would women want to re offend? Why would former drug addicts want to take drugs again? Why would they want to lose everything they have? and what she learns through working with these women is that there is nothing to lose Mm. they had nothing so there's nothing to lose they want to come back into prison because they don't have a bed Mm. they want to take drugs again because they have absolutely nothing that they want to remember i just wanted to read do you really want that though lily she writes even though it's taken so much away from you i asked it's not taken anything away lily replied because I didn't have anything in the first place. And if I come off the drugs, I'm not suddenly going to get back to this lovely fucking life I've never had. I'll just be left with the memories I was trying to block out in the first place. Mm. And there's many bits like that where I was just um, completely struck by this way of thinking that I just hadn't considered before. There's another point where she talks about um, an inmate called Sally, who was unpopular among staff because she could come across as rude, but um, that Mim... Took to because she was not unlike her mum in her communication. My wonderful mother is eccentric, she writes, and simply does not see the need for polite formalities, calling them fluffy bunny talk. She will announce at a party, I've stopped having fun now, I'm going to go much to the surprise of the host the only difference is context and the level of profanity employed my mum is a middle class artist who lives on the outskirts of London and so her blunt delivery is chalked up to artistic temperament rather than insubordination mm-hmm. so that's something really interesting that's I think so, about class so and yeah. eccentricities mm. and how accepted they are and the other thing that, the, I mean the whole book is, is really brilliant I can't stress this enough but the other thing that really struck me was on motherhood motherhood is revered among the prison's residents in a different Different way to how it is on the outside. In prison, motherhood is a reduced and long distance vocation, and so the importance of your maternal role to your identity is even more vivid. I imagine it being similar to nationality. Day-to-day, being British is an insignificant fact to me. I only notice it if I'm in a different country which doesn't automatically serve milk with tea or set much store by queuing. Identities have a habit of being more noticeable when you have been removed from the fact. Likewise, motherhood, which on the outside is par for the course, inside burns all the more fiercely for its physical absence and springs out continuously in conversations, carried photos, keenly anticipated visits and deep longing." It's really devastating but really important, so it's I think.
2: a powerful, powerful book.
1: It's a really powerful book and she's... Mim Skinner is an awesome woman who I implore everyone to follow on um, Twitter. She's no longer working in a prison but she's doing tons of interesting things around rehabilitation and women's rights and aid and um, reform. Mm. So, yeah, that was really brilliant. I wanted to recommend a BBC drama called Mother, Father, Son which has had pretty terrible reviews um, because it's quite i suppose melodramatic um but i found it really confronting and moving and it's got an incredible cast richard Gere plays a sort of um rupert murdoch-esque tycoon helen mccroy plays his ex-wife and billy howell plays his um cocaine addicted son who's running one of his newspapers he's in his late 20s and struggling with the pressure and he has a stroke from his um excessive cocaine habit and it's about um the family when he is recovering from this stroke um billy howell is incredible in it it's the first time i've seen full frontal male nudity on the bbc don't know if it's the first time they've done it it's the first time i've seen it it's also the first time i've seen the c word on a bbc primetime show have you seen that are they both
2: first i think i don't think i have first time i've seen either i found that quite interesting um but and that is reason enough to watch it yeah for the cocks and cunts (laughs) (laughs) I also wanted to mention because we never do
1: here for obvious reasons um, I wanted to mention a piece of your writing which I thought was really interesting which I saw lots of people on Twitter um, reacting to really positively because you put um, a name to it Um, it was your column on Sunday for Sunday Time Style and it's I'm in trouble syndrome and I think so many women I know feel this and I realise that that that's exactly why every time I call a friend for a chat which is something I like to do because I'm trying to bring back calls over texts or emails I then have to follow it up with Nothing important. Or when you say something, I've got something, I've got something I really need your advice on, or I've got something I need to talk to you about, and then you immediately go, it's nothing to do with you. You haven't done anything. And every woman subconsciously does it. And I think it will really resonate with our author special today. The feeling that you've always failed and you've always done something wrong. And I just wanted to ask you what inspired you to write that, and do you think that is something that loads of women
2: suffer from? Thank you so much for reading it and flagging it. Um, I wrote it because I'm not in a very good place with my mental health at the moment and I have been spending a lot of time thinking about why that is and I realised a lot of it is this deep shame that I carry around with me all the time Um, and I can't find evidence of of why I feel it and this is what the I'm in trouble thing is It's like, and most women I know have this feeling of just like Uh, disaster is about to happen I'm about to be cancelled terror and catastrophe is minutes away at any point simply because of who I am and I don't know what I don't know what I've done in my past or what is in me that's so terrible I just know that it is and I truly like the only way I've been able to make peace with that because that is a very very sad and, and like traumatic thing to walk around the world with The only way that I've been able to make sense of it is I think it has to be an inherited, cultural, biblical, epigenetic Mm. thing that we all carry, which is I'm woman, therefore I have sinned, basically. Mm. Um, So I just wanted to kind of um, explore that. And yeah, it's a weird feeling. I remember I first knew that I suffered from this I'm in trouble syndrome when um, <laughs> Operation U-Tree was happening. And I remember... Is that a lot to do with you, U-Tree? I remember getting drunk with a friend and saying, I've had this really weird feeling all week that they're going to come after me. She was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And she was like, you, how much shame do you carry that you constantly feel like you're in trouble Your time door. is up. My time is up. And I was like, I don't know, but I just feel like I have done wrong or am wrong. And, yeah, yeah, so I just wanted to, to explore that because it's so illogical. There's no yeah. point almost analysing the his, the the personal history of it for me. And it's so gendered, yeah, I think it is something cultural and inherited.
1: I think um, you'll have helped a lot of women um, with that column and talking about it now. And you definitely put a name to this, uh, a condition to this nameless dread I have where mm. I wake up in... When I'm not feeling great, I wake up very specifically with dread where i am preempting my telling off and i see this very literally in my mum actually when she says if someone's like mum and she goes am i in trouble Mm. or what have i done and it's it is it's absolutely just this female predicator and prediction i mean i think that you've
2: probably got more of a toxic brew with it than i have because you've got a whole bunch of catholicism (laughs) bunged on top of that which is all about kind of imminent punishment and you know I'll yeah. get my. I've got my flogging paddle. Actually, just could
1: you just pass it, <laughs> CJ? It's got a few studs on it. I'll give we'll you a
0: good have going a nice over. Little
2: flog. God, that sounds a bit S&M. <laughs> <laughs> um, on a lighter note, what have you been enjoying this week? I went to the Vaudeville Theatre in London to see. A show called Amelia, which is an incredibly rousing play about Amelia Bassano, who is a woman uh, lost in history. really. I, heard. I know, I know. And when you watch the play, it's quite astonishing that that we've never heard of her. She was the first known female poet writing in the 15 and 1600s. A lot of the play. I read a Guardian review. It's, it's probably important to say a lot of the play is um, quite speculative because the information we have on her is quite scant I think. Um, It's rumoured that she was Shakespeare's dark lady who he wrote about in his sonnets and her tale is a fascinating one of tragedy and silencing and shaming and erasure and acts for me anyway as a very pertinent reminder of how far women have come and how grateful I am to my female ancestors for the battles that they um, have already fought and the pain that they have endured i it was a mainly female audience the night that i went and there's i won't spoil the ending but there's it's quite an incredible um pick up your sword and fight ending that kind of gets the whole audience on their feet and that th- i did feel this kind of deep deep gratitude for being a woman in 2019 and a, a, nice to feel
1: like that rather yeah. than feeling like Despair. Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't want to feel constant despair. And yeah. I think sometimes we're kind of... There is a bit of a, like,
2: despairing, yeah, overarching narrative. And understandably, because only, you know, dwelling on the discrepancies of, the, of male and female rights can can we strive to, yeah. to move forward and equalise them. But it was... Yeah, it was a, a wonderful collective experience watching it. It's very funny, feminist, furious... Uh, with an all-female lineup, so even with the male characters it's um, in a sort of blackattery way it's women dressing up as men Um, and there are brilliant songs and some great dancing and it's a properly diverse cast probably the most diverse cast I've seen on a West End stage which made for such an interesting ensemble dynamic there were women of different ethnicities women of different shapes and heights a huge age range and included disabled women as well and I thought it was brilliant and something I think I would have particularly have loved to have seen as a teenage girl. So, parents or drama group leaders, if you're in a position with your resources or funding, if you're lucky enough to go, I'd highly recommend a trip to go see it.
1: Did you? I'm
2: interested how you found it. Did you read about it, or did someone no did you get a press release? No, about in, it? The, in the full interest of transparency, I was invited there by Kate Moss, who is the chair for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Not she... the supermodel. <laughs> no she's listening she's even better than the supermodel although I would really like a night out arguably as successful as the supermodel (laughs) I would love a night out at the theatre or otherwise with the model Kate Moss if she's listening (laughs) Uh, so yeah no she it was very kindly gifted to me but uh, I would recommend people to go see because it was um, yeah very very rousing and fun I have been watching and crying at Afterlife, a surprisingly moving new TV show on Netflix written by and starring Ricky Gervais in which he plays a widower who has lost the love of his life and subsequently lost his purpose and will to live. It shows him treading a line between contemplating suicide and being pulled back into the land of the living by old friendships and family relationships and new and unexpected friendships with various people that he meets on his kind of journey through grief. I really wasn't expected to be moved by this, but I was. It goes into some very, very big narrative territories that I wasn't sure could handle the treatment of Ricky Gervais's typically caustic humour and and quite kind of stark humour and stark worlds, really. It's not... It's the same... um, sort of lo-fi filming as something like Extras. So it is quite jarring initially to see something that's so emotional being put into the world of something with the kind of familiar lightness of Extras or Derek. Um, But it was really very tender and very well observed and an incredibly truthful depiction of the emotional landscape of loss. I've listened to him talk about the inspiration for writing this show on James O'Brien's new podcast uh, where he's got some brilliant guests. Uh, He also did a riveting interview with Tony Blair, I think was his first episode. The Ricky Gervais episode is very interesting and he talks about the fact... Because I've never really heard him talk about his partner that much, Ricky Gervais, and he... Oh, Jane, um, I've read a lot of her books. Jane Fallon. Mm -hmm. And he's extraordinarily devoted to her. And he said that the inspiration for... This story was literally his imagining of of what would happen if his partner was no longer there. That's oh, brave going to go into that territory. I don't know yeah. if I could dwell on that long enough to make mm. a a series about that. Yeah, but you can tell because first and foremost, he is a writer and comedian. So even in the most capable hands of of, a, of an actor, you would be quite worried. I think about about traversing these themes but he it's so realistic and so moving and so deep far reaching and true and I think it's it's just a it's a sign of uh how well he drew on his real life so I just I really really liked it and it features a totally brilliant performance from the comedian Roisin Conaty who I adore and a beautiful performance from Penelope Wilton I read the memoirist Cat Marnell uh, being interviewed for The Cut in the first interview I've read with her since her book came out, How to Murder Your Life. got it right here. Which I actually haven't read yet, but I know you did, and I am you desperate if you to like. read it once I get through my long list
0: pile for the women's prize. It's, um,
2: it's an intense read, I'll give you that. Yeah, it details her high-functioning drug abuse while working in Manhattan's media circuit, is that right? Yeah. And... I have read lots around her. It's a really interesting interview, not least because of her candour around money and her difficulties with spending, um, but because it's a telling account of what she's been doing with her life in the wake of such a sensational publication.
1: What has she? I'd like to think she's taken care of herself, but um, I'm pretty sure that she's kind of almost
2: now... Like, the a Yeah, yeah. I actually think she's managed to avoid that, but she... Um, I th- Is she's still taking a lot of drugs now? I think that she was taking drugs after it came out and then she decided to leave Manhattan and she's been travelling and hasn't gone back to New York for two years. Wow. She's still... She did- On the profits of that book? Uh, it's Well, it's really interesting when she talks about it because she said she basically has been living off every time there's a foreign sale for that book, which, thank God for her, there have been lots of foreign sales, but she said she's now got to the end of the road with it where she'll ring her publisher and be like... Where's that few thousand come from this publication in this country and that and now she said she's ready to kind of go back to reality. But she also talks about the fact that she didn't pay taxes for a very long time, so then she was suddenly hit with this like hundred and twenty something dollar tax. Yeah, I'd say
1: sales. money and drugs is what the book is about. Yeah. So um it's a very nervous it's a fairly nerve wracking read. Mm. I think reading about someone's struggles with money and drugs separately is stressful enough. Reading about the struggles with money and drugs and mm. health and yeah, it's actually made me feel a bit panicked.
2: Yeah, it's. About it's it. I am so fascinated by her, and I actually went on to read an Emily Gould interview with her. Oh, I love Emily Gould. Yeah, it's a really good interview. And Emily Gould does go into this idea of, um, and I was listening actually to an old Lena Dunham episode on Fresh Air, like an arc 2012 episode where she was talking about the character of Jessa, and both of these uh, pieces talk about this fascination we have with the lost girl, the Edie Sedgwick. Um, the kind of beautiful, talented but ultimately very fragile figure um, who society perhaps undermines or underestimates and yeah, how, how there is this obsession that we still have with this kind of glamour and recklessness of characters of people like Kat Marnell and how it kind of harks back to some sort of older female, almost literary trope
1: Do you know what? I just as you were saying that, I was just thinking, and I think you're right, I think most people do. I find characters like Jessa and writers like Kat Marnell actually, um, I can't really deal with them. I'm so um, sort of pragmatic and naive and like factual and linear and all all the things, I suppose, an antithesis to that. And Ollie always jokes that I can't suspend my disbelief. so, I have a really, I don't know, I find it almost like painful trying to understand that recklessness because it, um, I suppose, would suggest breaking down all those kind of barriers and parameters that, that I very carefully construct to yeah, keep that's me safe. Very self aware. Um, and so, like, someone willfully knocking down that, like, say, and also, like, it, it's supreme selfishness. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the, you know, when you read Kat's book, you can see how she lost. A lot of people in in her life um and yeah i, I find it almost too much actually mm. to read Or characters almost like but i think you're right that most people
2: um, i'm very seduced by it and I, I i don't know if that feeds into a kind of maybe it's a
1: freedom culture. to some people
2: whereas i to think me it is for me for me it is yeah that's interesting is. and i know that that's again in my own way very naive way of looking at it um and it's very clear that that cat monel is a troubled person um and I think that's fair to say that you still get that from her, this latest interview. I think she's someone who is still is still on the road to recovery and has lots of very exciting work ahead of her. But yeah, it is, um, it's something I'm very intrigued by. And she's very funny as well. One of the questions in this uh, interview about money was, uh, what was the first thing you spent your book advance on? She got an enormous book advance um, for that memoir. And she said... I rented a magic loft in Tribeca. Apparently, three bedroom loft in Tribeca. I mean, you see, this is what I, it's making me feel sick. <laughs> Pandora, it's not you. Don't I know. Worry. I don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. Thank God you went friends with me when I was twenty one. I rented a magic loft in Tribeca. No, because I wasn't. I also wasn't like
1: this when I was. It's the knowledge of knowing of, yeah. of leaving my twenties behind that has made me fear
2: out about stuff like this. Also, what's interesting is that when I, I did go into a bit of a kind of research hole after yeah I love after. doing that though and she I think she's in her mid late 30s yes, yeah she is mm. I rented a magic loft in Tribeca and then I bought a bunch of nice furniture I got one of those massive marble tables from white on white and an Icarus wing light and this other Italian lamp that would change colours I bought an embroidered pillow for $4,000 <laughs> then I overdosed on heroin the same day that'll be in the next book that was the kind of mm. yeah the $4,000 pillow like mm. in in the sort of um highs and I'm not saying that we should I you know that that should be an inspiration for anyone but no no we're no, just laying it out as something interesting In but this, all, I, all I also would say is that men are allowed to transgress and share these stories yeah. so, so I sure as hell think that women should be allowed to do the same what else have you been enjoying? I listened to a fascinating Fresh Air episode called The Emotional Lives of Primates in which primatologist Franz
0: DeVar So wide-reaching,
2: your, your entertainment. <laughs> ...discusses what he's learnt over his long career observing chimps and bonobos on how they express emotion and how it aligns with human emotion. I learnt so much in this episode. For example, he talks about the fact that years and years and years ago, he watched chimps, observed them very, very closely after um big conflict, so after they've had big big physical fights. And he said every time he's seen chimps within a colony fighting with each other, without fail, afterwards, after a period of cooling off, they groom and comfort each other. So they don't hold grudges. And he's but that's like human behaviour right that's like what we do with our friends that's what oh, I'm we I'm sorry come here for a hug Not yeah my... <laughs> or like makeup sex you know like that's what you do you have this kind of need that we've obviously inherited from our from a bonobo from a bonobo which is I love you bonobos. Know, closeness after conflict and another thing he said it's full of these like extraordinary observations it's so good another thing he said that I found interesting is that there was um one chimp, a female chimp who was really hostile towards him and he talks to Terry Gross about how he managed to like get her on side and befriend her and earn her trust so they had like this strange friendship although he argues not so strange because he thinks that a lot of scientists think that the humanization of animal characteristics is dangerous and minimising he thinks the opposite and I'm inclined to agree with him but he said that they had this kind of uh, closer bond and Terry Gray says, oh, how did you, like, how did you befriend her? And he said that she was struggling to nurse one of her babies, so he taught her how to bottle feed. Isn't that so beautiful? I love and then that. after she learnt that skill from him and her babies were healthy, they had this, like, lifelong bond. I mean, I'm not the first person to think this. Obviously, everyone loves watching Blue Planet, but there's something that I find incredibly calming and soothing
1: grounding as well grounding. remembering that we're just part of a yeah. massive sort of totally and I know you feel less
2: alone in the world totally I know that's like hippie-ish but it was like a stressful morning and I've just bought some like raised beds to put on my roof where I'm trying to grow vegetables and I just sat with like earth on my hands listening to this stuff about the primates. I don't think
1: that's hippie I I think it's I think actually what we have become now is because we're a sort of um very individualistic society and there's also like a lot of sentimental nihilism which is like nothing really matters so yeah. let's enjoy life yeah. and give ourselves all the treats is that we've actually lost the idea that my parents probably had which is just that like we're a very small cog in a machine connection yeah exactly. so not personalizing everything not seeing you mm. know seeing the world world's larger thing whereas there's with so much rotation around like I mm. now, so I totally I think agree. Putting your hands in dirt mm. and watching your bonobo films <laughs> is great and very what Nicky Sykes would have done back in the day. <laughs> probably still does. Let's do it together, Nikki
2: Sykes. (laughs) And finally, this is a call to arms, dear listeners, on behalf of my very talented brother, Ben Alderton, who is an actor and writer. He spent a number of years writing a hilarious satirical political comedy called Hell Yes, I'm Tough Enough, based on a very funny interview with Ed Miliband, that you probably remember him saying that, which is being put on at the Park Theatre in London from the 24th of April to the 18th of May. It's a biting, outrageous, rather silly, the Aldertons inherit that gene, uh, comedy based around the 2015 election with very familiar political figures such as David Carter and Ned Contraband. (laughs) Um, my brother is playing David Carter he and his producer are in desperate need of raising some final funds for the production and as we all probably know arts funding is a very difficult thing to raise and come by nowadays he's been working so hard to get the show up and running and I'm immensely proud of him the life of an actor I've seen firsthand over the last decade really is not an easy one and I'm endlessly in awe of his tireless enthusiasm for the discipline and his creative propensity for making it work which is why I'm talking like his stage mom now he set up a crowdfunding page to raise the last bit of money which I'll include in the show notes and it would mean so so much to me and to him if you could spare anything you fancy and then come down and see it and you'll probably see me there on the front row being the stage mom I was born to be and I also think some proper silly slapstick satire looking at the demise of British democracy is exactly what we all need right now.
1: I donated this morning because there can never be enough Alderton art in the world. Oh, I
2: love you. Thank you.
1: Support for the Hilo comes from Pandora UK, who are working on an awesome new partnership in support of Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month.
2: From the 15th of February to the 31st of March, jewellery brand Pandora UK, rather than small British journalist Pandora Sykes, will be selling a sterling silver International Women's Day charm, which is on the 8th of March, where 20% of each sale will go to Overcome. The UK's ovarian cancer support charity,
1: Overcome provides help to 18,000 people every single year. Ovarian cancer is the most common cause of gynaecological cancer deaths in the UK, with around 4,200 women losing their life to the disease every year. Around 7,400 cases of ovarian cancer are diagnosed per annum and the disease has a very low survival rate.
2: Screening tests for this type of cancer still do not exist, so raising awareness of the common symptoms is vital in order to prevent late diagnosis of the disease.
1: The charity partnership will be promoted in Pandora UK's 230 plus stores across the UK. It's a fantastic cause and we couldn't be happier to be working with Pandora UK on it. You really couldn't be happier. Well one day we'll find a really important brand called Dolly doing something really
2: great for charity, okay? Probably not anytime soon, but one day. (laughs) Head to your local store or visit Pandora.net to find out more about the partnership. Thank you very much to Pandora
1: UK! Had to steal my last hurrah, didn't you? You (laughs)
2: knew it was the last week they were
1: sponsoring us, and you just
2: Our author this week is the writer and journalist Elizabeth Day. Over the course of her career thus far, she's written multiple novels, one of which won the Betty Trask Award for first novels by authors under 35, and she's written features and interviews for The Telegraph, The Observer, Harper's Bazaar, Elle, The Evening Standard, and now The Mail on Sunday, for which she writes a weekly column and is their chief interviewer. Her podcast How to Fail, where she has interviewed best-selling authors including Sebastian Fawkes and Tara Westover, just finished its third series and next week she publishes How to Fail, her utterly brilliant first non-fiction book, which is part memoir, part manifesto, inspired by the podcast, which celebrates the lessons to be learnt and the grace to be exercised in getting things wrong. Hello.
1: Hello, Elizabeth. You are our first ever return
0: guest. Oh, I'm so flattered and thrilled to be here with you both. Both of you, of course, how to fail alumni. Yeah, both how to fail alumni,
2: and which if, was both we will get onto. But for both of us, was like the biggest therapy session. You are like a psychologist. I think you'd be a very good, a very good psychologist. It was that
1: our friendship with you is actually born out of the high low. We both met you almost two years ago, give or take a few months, almost two years ago to the day when you had just written The Party and you were our first
0: ever author special. Honestly, and I cannot tell you how grateful I was for that, not only for our friendship that's come out of that, but it made such a difference to The Party talking about it on the high-low. I had so many people who'd listened and it was just a little window into the wonderful power that you wheeled for the good mostly Um, (laughs) um, no it was so great and I'm so happy to be back I really am and I love your author specials
2: well we are more than happy to take 10%
0: of all your royalties it's actually 15
2: (laughs) having established yourself as a
1: novelist and the party was a bestseller what made you want to write a memoir about embracing navigating and metabolizing failure many people would say oh that's quite a
0: sore subject was the process different The process was definitely different. I think I wanted to do it as an act of reclamation. So that idea that failure is something that we should feel shame over, actually, particularly for women, I think it's especially important that we're not scared of it and that we build up an emotional resilience to it, because it will happen to all of us. And so it's much better to see it as something that is part of life, rather than seeing it as something which negatively defines you. And um, in in terms of writing a nonfiction book, it actually came out of the podcast. So I had the idea for the podcast, because in brief, I got dumped. (laughs) And as everyone listening will know, getting dumped is a curious kind of heartbreak. And I was having lots of really intense conversations with female friends at that time about what we'd learned from failed relationships specifically. And that led me into a sort of broader sense of what we learned from failure. So I came up with the idea for the podcast and it was my editor at Fourth Estate who has edited all of my novels and who is a completely wonderful woman who said, oh, that would make a brilliant book. And my initial response was like, yeah, it would, but I'm not gonna write it, so I <laughs> I'm quite busy. And then she said, Oh please go and think about it and write me a proposal over the weekend and I did. And, and that's Write how it me happened. a proposal over the weekend I know. in my defence. It did come much more quickly than a novel. So mm-hmm. that to your point about was it a different process, it was because I was really intimidated at the prospect of writing full-length non-fiction. And yet when I started, I realised I had so much that I wanted to say. And I realised that actually most of my life had been building up to this point. I'd been gathering experience for precisely this moment. So that's why it helped me write more quickly. Yeah. Um, and it was very different because you don't have to imagine an entire world. Your world is already there. You have lived it. And also because I've been a journalist for... Seventeen years or something like that. Um, I I had the kind of craft that I think was necessary in terms of just getting it down on on the page, and so it was actually a really quite a nice experience writing it. I did find it cliche that cathartic, <laughs> but I also found it um, really meditative in some ways, and it really sort of sorted out a lot of what I thought about about things. I'm interested when you reference failure
1: um, and women because I do think it's something that affects women and the shame around it so so much um, more intensely I was dipping into a proof copy of Reshma Sorjani's Brave Not Perfect this week and she writes that the perfection ideal in women makes us scared of failure as girls we are taught from a young age to play it safe she writes this really comes across in How To Fail when you walk out of your marriage you write it ended the story I had written for myself since childhood that centred on the neat symmetry of wife husband and two children of my own it ended my frenetic attempts at perfectionism how dangerous how insidious do you think this strive for perfection is and this temptation to play it safe with the simultaneous fear of failure and how much did that inform your writing of the memoir?
0: Such a good question. I think it's a really difficult thing that many women grapple with. And I think it's changing and I'm really happy to see it changing. And I know, Pandora, you will be raising Zadie to be much more of an assertive woman than I think I was raised to be. And that's not the fault of my parents. I grew up in the 80s and at the time, you know young girls were taught to be pleasant and nice and kind and to rub along nicely with other people in the class and boys were allowed to be assertive and bold and mischievous if you were a mischievous boy it was a sort of charming thing whereas girls never really got away with that and so I think from very early, I had this kind of notion that the way to get people to like me and the way to get ahead was to be nice and to be liked. And I would eventually be rewarded for that. And I did well at school and I was good at exams and that reinforced that notion. Now, the danger with that comes when you apply that to your personal relationships. And for me, it was my personal romantic relationships, where I was constantly trying to be the person that I thought my other half, whoever that might have been at the time, most wanted. And in that That way they would never leave me they would never fall out of love with me I would be their perfect other half and that was the ultimate expression of my people pleasing and what I say in the book is that ultimately it can become quite a selfish act because you're doing it to shore up your dwindling internal self-worth you're not actually doing it exclusively to be nice to others there's something quite sort of selfish to it and you need to take the time to really analyse what you want and the things that you desire. And I didn't do that for the entirety of my 20s. I was in long term relationships. And when I finally got divorced in uh, 2015, when I was 36, I just realised that I hadn't ever taken the time to work out what it was that I wanted and who I was. And it was very important for me to go through that stage. And as you say, it's, it's- born of fear and shame, because it's
2: basically this sense of when things are going well in my career or in my relationships, I I can't fail, I can't get things wrong, because then my entire existence might be cancelled. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I'm on borrowed time.
0: Yeah, and I think especially in the age that we now live in, where it is an age where opinion is constantly and easily generated, And it's an age of curated perfection where on Instagram we see other people living these supposedly beautiful lives. So at the precise time that you're feeling pressure to be most visibly perfect, it's also the time when people can criticise you quickly, easily and devastatingly online. Mm. And so these two things have happened and, and they make us, I think, as a culture quite hamstrung when we talk about failure. And and so really, this book was my answer to that. I definitely feel that my periods of greatest growth, and I mean, personal growth, not height growth, because I'm already 5'11". <laughs> um, um, but my periods of greatest growth and, and sort of greatest sense of strength building have come from when things have gone wrong, rather than when things have gone Right. Mm. And that's not that I'm not saying that one should go out and deliberately pursue failure, not at all. It's simply that, you know, it will happen to all of us. And actually, I think moments of crisis in life do force you to reevaluate who you are because how did you get there Mm. and what was it in your judgment that led you to that place and what was it that you allowed other people or other circumstances to do to you that left you feeling like this and it means that every single time you go through it you get stronger and wiser and more experienced and that's a really wonderful thing. Mm. The book spans a huge amount
2: of time and a huge ensemble of people that you've encountered in your life to give a full and vivid picture of your experiences with failure everything from not fitting in at school to struggling to conceive in your 30s were there any particular sections that were harder to write than others
0: Um, yes, I found the chapter on families hardest to write. So there's a whole chapter on how to fail at family, which actually wasn't in the original book, but my editor with her beady eyes and her brilliant insights said, I think actually that's something that you could examine. And the reason I was most worried about that was because I had a horror of offending my parents Mm. or hurting them in any way. And actually, what I say in that chapter is that people in families can quite often act from the best of intentions, but that you might end up pursuing a role that you think you've been given within that unit. And that our failure as adults is to carry on pursuing the role that we were given as children. And that sometimes that can be really restrictive. So I found that one quite hard to write. But the ones that I found easiest to write were actually... Dealing with the harder subjects in many respects. So that chapter at Failing at Babies was really emotional, but emotional in a good way, because I'd never been given the chance before to say everything I wanted to say about going through IVF, going through egg freezing, having a miscarriage. And it was so liberating being able to do that in the way that I wanted to do it without a word count from a magazine editor, and without any kind of pressure to put a certain gloss on it. So that was something that I I really, really loved doing. Because I don't think that enough is written about the women who can't have children. And mm. Again, I think that's changing for the better, but I still think there's an enormous way to go. And when I was going through IVF, there were no books available about what the process involved. There were so many books about babies, but there was very little about the flip side. So that was something I wanted to redress.
1: Failing at babies I've, I was the chapter I found most affecting in the book where you talk about the terminology around it child less you know the idea of failure that you are minus something you are less of someone you are a failure culturally as a woman if you don't have children children were something you always thought you would have and you write very movingly and passionately about how societally we need to make space for women who do not have children who are child free you also write that the fertility process is so much more damning on a woman I was left in in no doubt that I was the one failing. I was the imperfect female, failing to live up to the logical standards set by science and nature. I was the one consistently failing to be a mother. And it it was very moving and painful to read because... It's just so true, as you say, that it's it's just not um, it's not a subject. And that's not a woman that's been given a huge amount of consideration. And you're very funny when you talk about, you know, imagine if <laughs> imagine if I came in and said, um, well, it's just something that only if you have sort of non-breastfeeding boobs and an abundance of free time, you'd really know in that same way that someone will go, well, you just, you know, you, you can't really know unless you've had children. Um, and you confronted a headline this week which spoke of the agony of not having children and it's just those that terminology that we call upon quite lazily which you really challenge in that chapter can you talk a little bit more about
0: that? yeah of course thank you for reading it so closely um Uh, There are many things that I'm very aware that I write from a certain position of privilege. I am a white middle-class woman. I own a laptop and I make my living through writing. So there are certain things that I would not even dream of trying to write about or address because it would be deeply patronising to do so. I do not know what it's like to be a woman of colour. And similarly, I don't know what it's like to be a parent. But one thing I absolutely do know what it is like is to be a woman who does not have children and does not have children, not through choice. So I, as you say, had always grown up with this notion that I would have two daughters exactly like my parents did. And then it didn't happen for me. But my infertility was ultimately uh, unexplained. And fertility medicine is just Traumatically ambiguous at every turn, mm. so there's never any definite explanation, which makes you feel that there's something within you that has failed. And the terminology of so much fertility medicine is very critical. So a friend of mine was told that her womb was an inhospitable environment. You know, these are all. I I was told that I was failing to respond to the drugs, and actually, it was my friend Fran who said maybe you're not failing to respond. Maybe the drugs are failing you. Mm -hmm. And it honestly blew my mind at that moment that there could be this alternate way of looking at it. And I think that um, it's an interesting time to be living through. And I'm very grateful that I'm living through this particular time because there are an increasing number of women, many of whom I'm lucky enough to call my friends, who are in their late 30s and early 40s and who don't have children. And so I would feel less of a freak. But I still think that there's an enormous sociocultural assumption that if a woman doesn't have children, either she's going to be, quote-unquote, agonised by her childlessness, as that newspaper headline demonstrated, Or she's a sort of ambitious harpy who's never felt a maternal urge in her life. Mm -hmm. And actually, there's so much room for the in-between. And there are so many women that I know who feel a bit ambiguous about having children. And um, when I looked at my own life, I got to a stage where I realised it was much more important for me to have a functioning romantic relationship. And then within that, if it came about to have children, Mm. rather than I know that there are now sort of medical advances that mean I could go out there and have a child on my own if I were viscerally desperate to do so. But I'm not, and I don't want to go through all of those processes again because they were so debilitating and upsetting and emotionally draining to endure.
2: Something I've said to you of this book before was that as I was reading it, I felt you could really tell that the author was a woman of 40. I think you wrote it right before you turned 40, didn't you? Yeah. There was a sense of being totally kind of unapologetic and entirely balanced and rational in your tone as a reader you feel like you're in very responsible and reliable and safe and capable hands being taken through your various personal stories there's been a real trend towards 20 something and early 30 something memoir in the last half decade which for obvious reasons i'm <laughs> delighted by yeah i think you're <laughs> that. um but do you think that there's something to be said for waiting a while before you look back on your life to make sense of it all
0: and and create a memoir from it? I love that you said this to me before, because it hadn't actually struck me. And I would say in response to your question, it was right for me. Mm. And I think I needed time to assess my own experience. And also, quite frankly, if I'm being really honest, to have years of therapy, which helped me make sense of it. But, I mean, the number of therapists that must have basically <laughs> half-written
2: memoirs out there, mine being one of them, <laughs> verbatim <laughs> sessions
0: just chucked in. I know. I, do, I, I, do you give them a copy at the end? I have done that in the past. And I, in my novels, actually, almost all of I've written... Just wondering four. what the protocol is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't name my therapist, and, I, and I've written four novels, and in almost every single one of those novels, there is a therapist who sort of saves the day. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And my first novel, Scissors, Paper, Stone, had a therapist scene in it, in which the therapist basically got to the bottom of everything, this kind of character within the space of one chapter. And my editor felt it was unconvincing, so I had to change it. And I did send a copy of that book to that particular therapist saying... I'm really sorry because I actually wrote this in a way that was very flattering to you, but I had to change it because it was so unconvincing. Um, but And I realise again that therapy is uh, something that I'm privileged enough to be able to afford and I see it as an investment in my mental health in the same way that I would say for a pension. But in answer to your question, Dolly, I actually think there is room for a multiplicity of stories out there and I am incredibly grateful for the fantastic memoirs I've read by women of all ages and yours being one of them. Everything I Know About Love was such a game changer in terms of memoir and for me personally when I read it. And I think that there's such a wonderful variety of memoirs coming out. Um, And I was really influenced actually by American essayists. So I like to refer to them as the Rebeccas, Rebecca Traister, Rebecca Solnit, whole host of other ones. And I think in America, there's a really noble tradition of the essayist. Mm. And um, I wanted to attempt um to bring a bit of that into the memoir so that I wasn't just writing about the stuff that had happened to me but that I was also seeking to analyze it and yes. what it meant in a wider sense and I think that that's something that has for me only come with age and it's interesting age because I was nervous about turning 40 and then I turned 40 and it was great and the thing that people tell you about age is that it's wonderful because you get so much wisdom. And I always thought that was just like an easy line that people were telling me to make me feel less bad. It turns out it's actually true. And, and that is one of the great discoveries of ageing. As Pandora has mentioned, the book stemmed from your hugely
2: successful podcast series, How to Fail, in which you interview a wide range of people about their relationship to failure and their experiences with failure. These interviews act as kind of occasional case studies throughout the book. And I wondered, have you learned one overarching thing from all these conversations? Is there one particular theme or feeling that kept coming up that maybe surprised you?
0: One of the things that did keep coming up, so I asked interviewees beforehand to come up with three instances of failure in their life that they don't mind discussing. And the thing that kept coming up was failing at your 20s. Mm. And I actually hadn't thought that that was going to be as big a deal as it was. And it was really interesting for me because I then re-examined my own 20s. And there's a whole chapter in the book about it. And I realised that I'd found them really bloody difficult as well because there's such a phase of transition because you'll come out, you've come out of university and probably full time education and you're used to having your life delineated in certain ways according to goalposts that are easily set, that Mm. sort of exam results that you must achieve to get to the next level and suddenly you're in the world of work and no one's telling you you're doing a great job and you're having to pay off your student loan if you've been to university and you're also having to make your way as an adult and you're in relationships but you also feel pressure to be having a really great time and not being in monogamous relationships and it's just like a soup of, mm. of uh, unnecessary responsibility that is really difficult to navigate your way through so that was something that I learned and was surprised by, but now I'm not surprised by at all, having um, having looked at it in more depth in the book. And then the other thing that I've learned from my interviewees, there are some amazing people I've interviewed, and one of them it hasn't aired this episode yet actually, and he was a former chief business officer for Google X called Mo Gaudat who claims to have developed an algorithm for happiness. And his point was that you exist separately from your thoughts so your brain produces thoughts in the same way that your heart pumps blood around your body Mm. you don't think that you are defined by your blood therefore you shouldn't think that you're defined by your thoughts they are organic matter Mm. and you can actually tell your brain to behave differently and he gave this example of having had an argument with his daughter and having walked down the street afterwards and his brain was telling him your daughter hates you she doesn't love you anymore you're a terrible father And he stopped himself physically in the street, spoke to his brain and said, I want you to give me evidence for that. And if you don't have evidence, I would like you to override that negative thought with the positive one. And he said that you can train your brain that way and that it seems weird at first, but that actually it works. Yeah. So all we need to do is
2: just go work at Google first. (laughs) That kind of—that's completely riveting. It is. And Pandora and I definitely are people who need to give our brains like quite a scolding sometimes.
0: I think. Well, he had a name for his brain. He called his brain Becky after the most annoying girl at his school. (laughs) The name Becky Becky gets like a lot of. Shit, oh. culturally, well, yes. the name Becky,
1: yeah, has Becky not done the good not yeah. done so well recently. Speaking of the workplace, and um, I completely agree with what you were saying about never getting positive feedback. One of the um, most ongoing uh, agonies for me about being freelance is that when I send something off and someone says received fine, oh. I just need to know if it was good or bad. Oh, yes. I find it very hard to just exist in the in the sort of delivery. Um, aspect of that at times and I'm so glad for this how to fail reads like reads a little like a manifesto the chapter on failing at asking or attaining a pay rise and your sort of delayed fury at that is very much a call to arms I felt for women in similar positions hardworking, talented women to realize their power in eight years while staffing at the observer you write you hadn't had a pay rise eight years and it's something you struggle still with now asserting your financial work <laughs> you wrote um three of those novels in your lunch breaks evenings and weekends which also shows tremendous diligence which i think millennials could learn from I read recently that one in three millennials lasts just 90 days in a job which is fabulous PR for us guys. thanks for that <laughs> yet more brilliant PR for millennials I know just to uh, nod to that do you hope Yeah, it's how to fail for them do you hope how to fail will empower women to uh, not stay too long or put up with the same pay grade. Is that that an important takeaway for you?
0: Hugely important. And I'm so glad you picked up on that because I realised that actually my eight years at The Observer coincided almost exactly with the seven years that I was with the man who would become my ex-husband. And, um that's a weird way of putting it, isn't it? (laughs) Um, But I realised that I was in relationships where I hadn't fully asserted myself properly, romantically and professionally.
1: Reflecting each other.
0: Uh, Totally, uh, uh, totally reflected each other. And it, it really, I didn't notice it happening that much at The Observer. It was a sort of slow motion thing. And it wasn't that people were mean to me at all. I mean, I had a great overall editor who really did you know tried to listen to me and I would often come up with what I thought were solutions to problems that I was asking about and I was just at every single turn told no and as a result there was this culture that existed in my own head of not being able to ask for what I wanted and not ever advancing beyond the job that I'd been given when I joined the observer at age 29 And it got to a point where I was saying yes to everything. I was saying yes to the shittiest jobs that no one else wanted to do. I was saying yes to the like mad amounts of overtime, to the travel, everything. I was going into the office loads. Lots of the other feature writers there wouldn't really go into the office. And for some reason, I felt like I had to just to show that I existed. And I was hoping, I suppose, to be rewarded for that. And actually... I wasn't because I wasn't asking and I wasn't clear about what I wanted and I never once asked for a pay rise even though I consider myself a card-carrying feminist and that's outrageous to me and it just got to a point where I think I hit a wall and I was like I can't do this anymore and if I want to be taken seriously I have to take myself seriously and I quit and I went freelance and I didn't have a job to go to and and people at the observer thought I was mad and looking back it is the best professional decision I have ever made because that That does give you a sense of your worth you take a gamble on yourself and you have to set your own prices therefore you've got to become a lot more wised up and a lot less embarrassed about asking for a fee and i know that pandora and i have talked about this a lot in the past because i i am really bad at talking about money and i'm really bad at valuing myself And I think we're entering a time when women are being encouraged to be more open. And that is the only way that the gender pay gap can ever be addressed, I think. Was there
1: any part of you, I'm interested, because after eight years of leaving, whilst it was incredibly brave and freeing and actually brilliant for your career to leave after eight years, there's also um, an element of... Oh, well, that could feel like a failure, that you spent eight years trying to get something, couldn't get it and left. How did... I'm not saying I see it as a failure, yeah. by the way, just that I, I know that that's how some brains could work. How did you rewrite it to feel like, no, this is not... A failure. This is that I have got everything I can out of those eight years, and here's what I need to do the next eight. Or was it just that the work immediately started coming in when you were freelance, and you felt so quickly satisfied that it didn't feel like that? I just wondered if there was any kind of rewriting of the situation that you needed to do, and for other women who are similarly nervous about feeling like quitting a job is failing, because we are. My mum always used to tell me, you know, to never like. I don't know, we move around jobs now a lot more than people yes. used to. So I just wondered if there was any yes. thinking about that.
0: I think at the time I didn't conceive of it as a failure because I had my novels. So I was already a published novelist and I knew that if I wanted to be taken seriously for being an author, which I did, that I needed to step away from a staff job on a national newspaper. Mm-hmm. So I was able to reconfigure it in my head in that way. And the other way in which I could tell myself that it wasn't a failure was that I had spent eight years on one of the best Sunday newspapers in the world, which had space for some of the best writing in the world and was one of the few papers that were still doing long form journalism. And the pieces I'm most proud of, some of them, many of them are from that mm-hmm. era. I think the The place where I struggle is that it seems to take me a long time to learn things about myself. I'm good at assimilating information about other people or facts, but... It's taken me a long time, and I feel that if I were to regret something, it would be wasting too long in relationships that weren't for me. And I mean that in personal relationships and professional ones. So, eight years is a long time to learn that that particular place is not actually going to give you what you want. But, you know, it's a long time. And at the same time, because it was a long time, I think I've accumulated a store of necessary wisdom that has a strong foundation to it and a huge
1: body of work Mm. both as a novelist and a writer clearly your your
0: frustration
1: was just amping you up to produce more and more work because that was your only sort of outlet um so if anything you should just be sitting back and really enjoying your your press clippings
0: (laughs) that's so true and I remember Dolly you once said to me that you're a great believer that anything is fuel Mm. that actually anything that motivates you to do something that you want to do is is a great thing yeah and so i yeah i totally agree with you and i would in just to wind back to what you were actually asking me i would encourage women to have more faith in their ability to take leaps into the unknown a huge listenership and readership for
2: you is women in their 20s or women about to enter their 30s Your 30s was a time, it seems from the outside, of enormous change and loss and occasional crisis. What information do you wish you'd been armed with before you entered that incredibly intense decade? What advice would you give our listeners about heading into that decade?
0: The advice I would give is that things will not go according to plan and that this is actively a good thing. I was always someone who had... A clear five year strategy, Mm. both personally and professionally. And no five year strategy that I've ever had has come to fruition. And I don't think it's helpful. I interviewed Kristen Rupenian recently for the podcast, and she said this brilliant thing about how she'd lived her life according to the future version of herself. So that when she was in her late 20s, she was thinking, well, when I'm 35, I will want to be married and have children, and I will want to be doing this for a job. And when she got to 35, she didn't want to be doing that. And she was in a relationship with a woman. Mm. And and I think that that's a really good lesson in allowing the universe to unfold exactly as is intended. And that when things don't go according to plan, actually, that's when you make the biggest, most beautiful discoveries, and it can be the source of your greatest success. So I would say, don't worry. I love that. Mm.
1: The Divisive writer James Frey said to you, you shouldn't look at failure as something terrible, it just is what it is. And you shouldn't look at success as something great, it just is what it is. Which I think is admirable if not completely impossible for a lot of people i'm also not sure about the idea of not celebrating success anyway he's he says a lot of things um, that you relate that i thought was interesting discussion for another time but it was your words near the end of the book that offered the most salient lingering advice on failure which have stayed with me living your life according to what everyone else might think of you is to cede control of who you are it is to outsource your identity to a bunch of strangers who do not know you and i feel like that that was such a you line like that felt like what you had been building towards and what this book actually is really saying in its you know myriad ways do you think having written this book you have learned to overcome caring what others think of you and have you to be really on the nose about
0: this learned how to fail born broadcaster pandora it was great it was great i love that question um just the way it was phrased i think I still care what people think about me, but I'm extremely aware of where that care comes from and how to care for myself within it. So I'm much better able to analyze what's happening and that at times when I feel vulnerable, I will probably care more, but that doesn't mean that it's more real. So I've come up with strategies to cope with that. So I don't look at my Amazon reviews. I don't look at online comments on pieces that I write anymore. And once I made that decision, it was actually quite easy to stick to. And and my other coping strategy is to have people that I fundamentally care and respect in my life whose opinion I will seek. And those are people who are close friends of mine, and who aren't in a kind of transactional relationship with me. So they're not going to earn money because I'm Selling more papers off the back of what I've written, um, and and those those cornerstone relationships are incredibly important to me, and it's why. I've been quite frenetic about getting my best friend, my boyfriend, other close friends to read How to Fail before it's published, because I was like, I just need to know that you think it's good and you think it's okay. And then if someone's mean about it, I can go back to you and just have that reassurance because I fully trust you. So that's been very important. And I also do believe that I've wasted so much time living my life according to how I think I should live it. And I'm done with that now. I really am. I want to live it as I want to live it because life is short, but it feels tremendously long if you're in the wrong place. And you have the power to change your life and it is never too late. And often by taking that risk, you reap the greatest and most wonderful rewards. This was such a
1: good Oprah moment. I wanted to... Hell yeah! Um, if you hadn't read any of your Amazon reviews ever, though, you'd have never come across one of my favourites, which you did put in the book. It's a book. It's a book.
0: Yeah, well, the there was no apostrophe. The apostrophe was in the wrong place. Um, so I used to read it's my Amazon review, and that was the one that, yeah, that was one that I closed. And you wrote, that's about the sum of it. But <laughs> well, that's the thing. Well, that's also a bit like failure and success. They are just what they are. It's yeah. what it's the emotion that you attach to them that makes you feel a certain way about them. Yeah. Mm. Elizabeth Pandora and I loved How
2: to Fail and we know it will be a source of inspiration and a comforting companion for many, many others. Thank you for speaking with us again and thank you for being such a force for good in the world. How to Fail is published by Fourth Estate and is available to buy from the 4th of April.
1: Thank you so much to Elizabeth for coming on the Hilo and thank you very much for listening. You can rate, review and subscribe. It helps boost us in the charts and helps <laughs> other people find us. You can tweet us at the Hilo Show and you can email us thehiloshow
2: at gmail.com. We will be taking April off the Hilo. The is going on Easter holidays. Yeah, I love that we basically now do like a school We do, we have time times. I'm yeah. forever welded to the scholastic year. Me too. Um, and we will miss you dreadfully but we'll be back with lots of juicy recommendations and anecdotes of our wild adventures in April when we come back. So we'll be back and talking to you first week
1: of May. Can I also caveat that the Hilo may be on holiday and Dolly and I are taking short breaks in that time, but we are not totally on holiday. I think people think that we take excessively long holidays. The Hilo just needs to have some R&R and to not be a brat. It needs to just rest itself, get its lungs back and we will see you in May. Bye! Bye Bye-bye!